everyone, and welcome back to Down a Dark Road, where we talk about the many serial killers that happen to be truck drivers. Now, I just want to say that my husband is a truck driver, and I have met many, many truck drivers that have family and are salt of the earth, but we're not talking about them. We're talking about um, the people that can't control their impulses, and they use truck driving as a means to prey on their victims. And know those back roads. Exactly. So my name is Christy. My name is Jenny. And we're sisters. And we also have another podcast, if you'd like to listen to it, called Ruter, where we focus on unsolved and solved but wacky crimes in Wyoming. But this isn't about that either. So we're going to jump in. This week, we're going to talk about Edward Arthur Surratt. Now, Edward Surratt was born in Aliquippa, Pennsylvania. Also known as the Shotgun Slayer. There you go. August 8th, 1941. Now, he was the only child of Arthur and Anna Mae Surratt. And Arthur and Anna Mae, uh, they were well-to-do. Arthur had his own garbage collection business, and Anna Mae stayed home with Edward, which is pretty typical around that time. Um, there's not a lot of women that worked outside the home that time, so pretty typical. Now, you'll see Wayne LePicky's name come up through this case. He is a childhood friend of Edward Surratt's, and he went met him in school, according to... Wayne, there was one school and everybody went to it. So whether you were poor or rich or whatever, you went to the school. And he had said that Surratt seemed to be doted upon. He was always well-dressed. His mother and father gave him everything they could. And they were on the wealthier side, so they, that obviously meant a lot. Another thing Wayne talked about was when Edward was little, Eddie, he called him, uh, he was devilish, not serial killer devilish, but liked to p play pranks and, you know, with the jokes and was always laughing and always cutting up with other kids. He was not introverted at all. Um, his father, like I said, owned the garbage collection business. He was quiet. He was very well respected in the community and he held himself out to have money. Um, he himself was always well-dressed, nice cars. Now, Wayne, when he went to high school, moved to another school. And he had always said that, you know, Eddie was smart and did well in school. But for some reason, he didn't graduate when everyone else did, when he should have, in 1958. And we do know that in 1959, Edward Surratt was arrested for loitering and prowling. And I'm assuming prowling means stalking, maybe? Yeah. Or peeking? I'm not sure. In 1960, he was arrested again for loitering and prowling again. And this time, he also assaulted a police officer when he broke his nose. So finally, Edward Surratt graduated in 1960 from Aliquippa High School. And then after that, he did attend Youngstown State University from September of 1962 to June of 1963. So it sounds like he kept in there for a year, a couple semesters, and then maybe thought it wasn't for him. Right. Um, a lot of people do that. Uh, a lot of my family does that. Like, okay, right. well, I would rather work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so seeing that college was not for him, he actually joined the U.S. Army in 1964. And then he did receive an honorable discharge in, August, in August of 1965. And right after that, he joined the Army Reserves, which is really kind of odd. If he wanted to be in the military, why didn't he just stay? But... I don't know. Uh, the Vietnam War was going on then, so maybe that had a lot to do with it. And while he's in the Army Reserves, right after he gets his honorable discharge, his dad passes away from lung cancer. 
and he leaves his garbage collection business to his only son. Oh, there you go. Right? Yeah. Set up. So he did try, Edward Surratt did try to take over the garbage business, but it ultimately failed. Um, He didn't work a lot with his dad on it, so he probably didn't learn the business end of it and what you had to do. So that failed, but he didn't let that stop him. Um, He was doing his Army Reserve things, and at Fort Dix in 1965, he actually reunites with Wayne Lepicki, his childhood friend. And by this time, Wayne is a medic, and they process the troops in and out together. So when you go in, when you go out, you've got to get the physical exam, all of that. That's what they did. Surratt had also become a chaplain's assistant while in the Army, which is a big surprise to Wayne because he wasn't, didn't seem to be that religious. So one day after his reserve duty ends, he does join the Marine Corps, and this was in 1966. And while he's in the Marine Corps, he becomes an amphibian track crewman. So what an an amphibious track crewman does is it maintains the equipment, the vehicles, um, the upgun weapons station. They prepare the amphibious assault vehicles for tactical employment of the troops and the equipment um, during ship-to-shore movement and the resulting operations ashore. So now we know. That so it's... amphibious means like they can go on water and land. Right. Correct? Okay. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So he was ultimately discharged honorably in September of 1970. So he served another three years in the Marine Corps, and he was over in Vietnam for the war. And according to Wayne Lepicki, there was talk around town that there were terrible firefights that had happened over there that Edward Surratt uh, most likely would have seen or been a part of, so it wasn't nice. It wasn't great. One month after his deployment ends, he marries a woman named Afia, and she had children by other, another marriage, so he became a dad. And then he also becomes employed by several trucking companies. So it's at this time that he does become a truck driver. Unfortunately, in March of 1973, he was arrested for sodomy, abduction, and enticement of a 13-year-old boy in Virginia Beach, Virginia. Wow, where did that come from? I don't know. With history of just stalking, prowling. He's leading up to it. Yeah, it's like a a progression. First you're peaking and then this happens. And he's also been to Vietnam. Right. Yeah. Because of this, he was sentenced in 1974 and he ended up being convicted of everything except for the abduction. So because he wasn't convicted of the abduction, he didn't get a very heavy sentence. In fact, he was released in 1976. So what did he serve? Two years. Oh, wow. That's freaking it. Right. Like we said, yeah. you know. You kill somebody and... Yeah. The court system just does not care about molestation. Honestly, I just, you know, like I say, you molest a 24-month-old, you get 24 months. You molest a 24-year-old, you get 25 years. I, I don't understand it. But anyway. the protection for our children. Exactly. Yeah. You would think that that would be a greater sentence. And most of the time, they're uh, repetitive. Mm-hmm, exactly. Crimes. <laughs> right. Because, you know, it's proven that you cannot rehabilitate a pedophile. So there you go. Yeah. So he was released in 1976. And the only thing that happened after that, as far as legally, for a while, was he just received a ton of traffic violations. As a truck driver? 
uh, checked in his personal car and okay, and I'm not sure if it was while he was at work or not. And he's still married to Afia, yes. To Afia. Mm-hmm. So after the Virginia Beach uh, debacle, he moves home to Aliquippa in 1977. And I just want to tell you guys that there is a wonderful, it's a 12-part documentary on YouTube, and it's called Notorious, and the Beaver County Times actually produced this, and Dr. Laura, I'm going to slaughter your name, I'm sorry, Petier, Petier, who is a forensic criminologist, is the one that um, hosts this and tells all the information, but there's a ton of information, and if you're interested in this case, I would suggest you go and look because you can see crime scene photos. You can see uh, what we talk about later in the case about him changing his appearance. Um, there's so much information in there, and I would definitely recommend you go and sit down and watch it. It's great. So Beaver County um, is a definitely a farming county. It's a rural area. Uh, it's right on the border of Ohio. Farmland out there? A lot of farmland, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, because of the Beaver and Ohio River, so that's basically, it's little tiny towns, um, very strong communities. On September 20th, 1977, in Beaver Township, Ohio, after going over to check on David and Linda Hamilton, a neighbor reported finding David Hamilton dead in his house, and Linda was in fact missing. David and Linda were a younger couple, he was an electrician and she was a waitress, Later on at the autopsy, David Hamilton was found to have two gunshot wounds to his head with a thirty-eight caliber. Detectives found Linda's car shortly after near a truck stop. By the car, they found women's footprints and also boot footprints leading towards the street, but no sign of Linda. Oh, maybe she's the culprit. Maybe. That's what a lot of people thought. Right. If they, especially if they can't find her and she's not by her husband. Right, because that's what usually happens. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, you get really mad when they go right to that, but you, there's so many cases where that's true. Yeah. <laughs> Seven days later, on September 27th, 1977, on Warrendale Bain Road in Marshall Township, Pennsylvania, now this is Pennsylvania, Frank Ziegler, a milk truck driver, had pulled over to take a nap. Witnesses found his body inside of his truck, and he had also had been shot and killed. The contents of his wallet were spread all over the truck. His license, his insurance, all that were everywhere, like somebody had been mad scavenging through it. And it found $400 was missing. So this looks like a robbery, an armed robbery. Which so. it's probably not his money. It was probably for the milk. It could be, yeah. Four hundred dollars in the seventies. Yeah, that's a lot I figure of money. that's a lot of money to yeah. have on you. <laughs> exactly. So, Chief Robert Payne, Edgewood Police Chief, determined that David Hamilton and Frank Ziegler were indeed shot with the same caliber weapon. Now, Frank Ziegler was in Pennsylvania, and David Hamilton was in Ohio. Just remember that. That will come. That will come up again. Okay. And they're really close together, Mm -hmm. these towns. Yes. But in different states. Right. Okay. So I don't know a lot of our listeners. um, We live in Cheyenne, Wyoming, and Fort Collins, Colorado is like half an hour away, but we're in different states. But it's like that. It's They're so close that we do a lot of our shopping in Fort Collins. Uh, We do a lot of our entertainment in Fort Collins, but it's, uh, in fact, in different states. So it's kind of like that. We're close, but no, not so much. On September 30th, 1977, 
three days and only three miles apart from where Frank Ziegler was found in his milk truck. On Warren Road, Joe and Kathy Weinman were found murdered in their home. According to Robert Payne, Joe had been a Vietnam veteran, and he was a machine gunner in Vietnam, and now he was a quadriplegic being injured in the war. Kathy had been Joe's girlfriend when he went to Vietnam, and she waited even when he became a quadriplegic. She waited through all of his rehab and all of that, and they got married, and they, in fact, had two children. Wow, what loyalty. Yes. So that day, September 30th, 1977, Kathy was going to have a garage sale, and that was the day of the murder. So she advertised it all around town, and they ended up having a very successful garage sale. So she packed up everything, and the family was settling down. It was probably after dinner. You know, they had a big day out in the sun. So they put away the garage sale stuff and were just settling down for the night. So detectives later determined, looking at the crime scene, that Joe had been on a gurney in the back hallway. And Kathy, in fact, had been changing his bandages. The intruder struck Joe in the head with a five-pound sledgehammer. <clears throat> now, Kathy was able to get away and run, and she got almost to the front door, and she was stopped by the intruder. And she was stabbed multiple times. In fact, he actually cut her throat. Now, Joe amazingly did not die from the five pound sledgehammer hitting his head he actually got into his wheelchair off the gurney after he'd been hit in the head and then was wheeling himself to where he stashed his own gun the intruders saw him and then in fact beat him again to death to death now those two children were not touched they were hiding under their bed oh thank god yes and after the intruder left they ran out of their house to their neighbor's house to call the police or to tell them what happened so the neighbors could help them. So you have to figure they ran by their dad's body. They ran by their mom's body. It's just Oh, what trauma. Horrible. On October 22nd, 1977, in Findlay Township, Pennsylvania, John Feeney was 17 years old. Now, he had just gotten his first check from being a busboy, and he wanted to take... Renee Gregor out on a date. Now, Renee was 15 years old, but he wanted to spend money on her. So he went to pick him, pick her up. He was actually in his mom's car. And later they found him dead, slumped over the steering wheel with the engine still running. And it looked like he had been shot in the neck with a shotgun. Oh, no. Yeah. And Renee Gregor, who had been with him, was never found. Now, the community at this time was freaking out, for sure. There was a big rush on the sale of guns, <coughs> dogs, alarm systems, even women. They were out in the shooting ranges so that they would be able to protect themselves. Maybe like self-made curfews. Yes. Yeah. Um, they were begging the police force to help them because there was definitely a killer on the loose. In fact, there had been four women murdered that they wanted to tie into these other fresh murders that were happening. Uh, Susan Rush was found November 26, 1976. Mary Gensey, February 21, 1977. Debbie Capiola, March 28, 1977. And Brenda Ritter, May 19, 1977. Wow, there is no breaks. No, and that's why I think they thought that this killer could also be their killer because if you look at the, the cases I've, we've talked about, they're just so close together. Just right. boom, boom, boom. In the same areas. Right. It just seems kind of ridiculous to me that there would be no evidence 
that close together, it seems like if you read true crime at all, or about serial killers, that when they're that close together, it seems like they're losing control and they get sloppy and that's when they get caught. Right. But it doesn't yeah. seem like that in this case. So the citizens uh, bought their guns and put alarm systems in and got big guard dogs. Um, but they also were demanding that the police department do something about it. So they actually gathered up a group and stood outside of the police station and they demonstrated and protested. And they said, we'd rather pay more taxes for police than pay for a funeral. Well, that makes more sense than defunding the police. Oh, ding, ding, ding. Yeah. Right? This police force listened to them and they hired more officers to come and help because they realized they had a problem by this time as well. On October 27th, 1977, Eugene Kuhn, who is the Allegheny County Sheriff, declares a state of crime emergency. I have not heard of that. I have not either, and I haven't heard of it since. Right. He realized that they needed help. Now, this guy is the hero of this whole entire story. He was the head of homicide for uh, years in Pittsburgh, and he had the best homicide clearing rate that they had ever seen. So then when he goes to Allegheny County... Um, he does more great work. He goes to the legislature and gets a grant for his state of crime emergency, which allows them to pay for more officers, and then they actually form a special homicide unit. Awesome. So their own task force. Yeah. Now, Robert Minard becomes commander of that task force. At this time, he's working in the Allegheny County Homicide Division. He's a homicide detective. Well, he becomes the commander of this task force, so he is in charge of not only covering the individual homicides that are happening, but also coordinating with different law enforcement agencies. So he's working in the individual and then he's working in all together. So he's actually having two jobs at this point. On November 10th, 1977 in Beaver Township, Ohio, there was a house fire and it was at the home of John and Mary Davis. Now this couple had been married. They were both in their sixties. And investigators, once they put the fire out, found the couple dead inside. And they had not been killed by the fire. They'd, in fact, been killed with a 12-gauge shotgun. And this is weird to me because Surratt does not try to hide evidence in any of the other cases. Like, there's no other fires. Yeah. Just this one. That's not a... So it makes you think maybe it's an accidental. Like, maybe when so something happened. I know that sounds far-fetched, but it's just weird to me that never he's never tried to hide anything. It's yeah. just right there. On November 19th, 1977, on Anderson Road in Darling, Pennsylvania, the Pennsylvania State Police get a call of a dead body. And this body is located, like I said, off Anderson Road. Now, this is not a paved, um, nice road. This is more like a farmer's road. And it's right next to the Ohio border. So a lot of the law enforcement officials, including the FBI, thought this has got to be somebody that's around this area that would know all of these roads. Right. Yeah, and there's a lot of bodies accumulating. Huh? For this little town. Yeah. The body was of a partially clothed black female. She had no ID, and it was obviously a body dump. There was no evidence that any sort of trauma had happened to her at that spot, like blood or anything like that. She had obviously been dumped. So Harper Simpson was the deputy coroner at the time, and he was also the funeral director. So it shows you how small of a community that is. So he did the embalming, and he sent the features out with the reconstruction. He called an artist to come and sketch her face. And then after that, he put it to all the papers he could, 
um, the television, all of that, trying to get her likeness out so he could identify her. Right, some missing persons, something. And indeed, her family saw the picture and oh. identified her as Patricia Randolph, and they always called her Baby Doll. And she was from the Homewood Brushton area in Pittsburgh, and she'd been strangled, mm. which is another odd thing. And they thought maybe she was a prostitute. They were not sure. Even her family was not sure, but they like kind of, maybe, we don't know. Yeah, a little estranged. <laughs> but this is another thing with the strangling. Um, you know, there was no other strangling. It's like definitely a violent. All the other ones were shooting and stabbing. And I don't really know if they can connect her with that. Yeah, that would throw him off if yeah. it was connected. Yeah, you would, you would think maybe that's not him that did that. November 20th, 1977, in Falston, Pennsylvania, William Adams was shot in his trailer. Now, him and his family lived on a trailer on his dad's car lot, Central Auto Sales. Detectives found that the intruder had entered the trailer through a broken window on the door. And this is like what you see in the movies where they bust the window and they reach and unlock the door. So, William Adams was shot in his trailer and his seven-year-old son finds the mom is gone and the dad is dead in his bedroom. That seems to be a pattern with the women gone. Right. Yeah. But, oh. but they've never found them. Like, they, what do you do with them? Yeah. So the seven-year-old finds his own dad? Yes, the seven-year-old finds mm -hmm. his own dad. And like a good boy, he picks up the broken glass and he throws it into the trash. And then he goes to the freezer and he gets him and his sister a popsicle. Oh. And he tries to call his grandma, but the phone cord had been cut. So he goes to the business office and calls his grandma from there. Oh, because they lived on the car lot. Yes. Okay. I don't know what time that happened. They didn't say, but you'd think if it was a car lot, there'd be people working there. Yeah. That would have heard it. It's a trailer on the lot. But if it was this suspect and he's really good at the prowling and stalking and, and knowing. Maybe, maybe, but that's loud. So one thing the detectives found that they couldn't figure out were little bits of paper all over the trailer. And they ended up to be Band-Aid wrappers. And so the detectives at first were stumped because why would a killer take time to, if he cut himself with the glass or whatever, why would he take time to put Band-Aids on his cuts? Like go to the bathroom, look and everything. Yeah. But in reality, and what the detectives found and what broke their hearts was that the kids, a seven-year-old and his sister, had actually tried to put Band-Aids on their daddy's boo-boos oh, to make no. him better. Oh, that's so sad. Heartbreaking. Yeah. <laughs> December 3rd, 1977, in Moon Township, Pennsylvania, Richard and Donna Hyde were again victims of this killer. Like, nobody's safe. Even or, in your home, especially in your home. You might want to just walk around, right? Because you're safer outside than inside at this point. And that's the hardest thing. I mean, that's your sanctuary. Yeah. That's like your, for everything. And these smaller towns, we don't lock our doors. It's just so, it's it's awful to think about that. You're right. Like, they're just thinking about the house and the home and, you know, you're, you're fine in there. It's the big, scary world that's awful. It's But yeah. when you get inside, it just ruins that. So Richard Hyde was the principal of Fern Hollow Elementary School, and Donna was a beautician. Now, Donna did most of her work. She had a little area that she did um, all of her styling at the house. Now, the weird thing was that Richard put security lighting on the corners of his house that night, and the neighbors said he had never done that before. But he put them in the corners. Okay. So like motion lights? Um, I'm not sure if they were motion lights, security lights. They have to be, right? But yeah. I don't know if they made them like that in 1977. Mm. I don't know. 
From the crime scene, detectives were able to deduce that Donna had been in the bathroom and Richard had been in bed on the telephone. Now the intruder once again breaks the window of the side door. Ah, that's the stupidest thing. To put windows and doors? Yes. Yeah. Windows are windows, doors are doors. Thank you. (laughs) Okay. It's like doing much movies, con. Yeah. Oh. Well, like you said, we should start a door company. Don't get murdered by our doors. Yes. No windows. (laughs) My door has a big old window. Oh, it does. Yours does too. Yeah, it does. So the killer breaks the window of the side door. He goes down the hallway past the bathroom where Donna is. So he has to walk by her. And Richard, by this time, has heard the glass breaking and has come out into the hallway. With his gun. No. no. He had a gun in his nightstand oh, right by his bed, but it, he never got it. He never that touched it. That is so it. odd for right. him to be so aware to put security up and not follow through with that part. Exactly. Think about, well, you and I think about my family. They always... It's in it's my nightstand. Right there. Yeah, yeah, loaded. I just stopped. That doesn't make sense to me. But of course, I've never been confronted with that, so maybe... I don't know. Maybe he thought Donna fell or something. But true. I mean, I've heard noises and I have not taken my pistol with me. So, here I mean, I know, right? <laughs> so, so he's in the hallway. So he's in the hallway and they're grappling and they're wrestling around. And Richard loses the fight and he ends up shot with a 12-gauge shotgun. Wow, at close range. That's, that's crazy. It's hard to do. Because you think if they're wrestling, do you step back? Okay, hold on. Do you... Yeah. Even with any long rifle or yes. shotgun, how do you do that? Yeah. So Richard stumbles into the kitchen. That's where he expires. Mm. Now Donna sees all this, and she books it. She makes it out of the house, and she is running. She's running towards the property of Richard's parents. They own property right next to them. In fact, that's why Richard and Donna live there, to be closer to his parents. Mm. So she is running, and she makes it. She makes it out of the house. She's running down yeah. the hill. Unfortunately, there's another hill, so she's trying to climb it. You picture she's in her nightgown, trying to get through this wet dirt. And later on, uh, detectives find her body on Flogarty Run, which is the street by her house, under a tree. And she is naked from the waist down, and her clothing is placed right next to her body. And it looks like she has blunt force trauma to her head. And, of course, she died of exposure, because it was December 3rd. So Was she raped? Yes, she had been raped. That must have been the excitement of the chase for him. Probably. Oh, God. I know. Fucker. That's a gross way to think of it, but yeah. <laughs> we have to get in their mindset. Right. So the Figure ta- this out. <laughs> so they add more power to their task force, which doesn't at this point seem to be doing a lot. Mm. Now, the Pennsylvania law enforcement community knows that there's a serial killer out there. Meanwhile, the Ohio police are issuing an arrest warrant out for Linda Hamilton for the murder of her husband. Where they found the car a distance away from their house, and she's missing. They found the car, they found her bare footprints and boot prints next to her, and they still issue an arrest warrant. Wow. What the fuck? They gotta they gotta nail somebody to calm the community down. They've maybe, gotta Maybe that's how they're doing it, but you know, there's other murders in Ohio. It's not just them. <laughs> yeah. I don't understand. And they're so close they should know that there's that task force and everything. Right. How can he be so oblivious? Like with a bigger tax force, um, maybe they're hoping to deter the murdering. I don't know, but it's not working. No, for sure. Not. No, he doesn't really seem to care about, and all about that. On December 31st, not even a month later, 1977, in Breezewood, Pennsylvania, Guy and Laura Mills are shot in their home, and they are in their 60s. Again in the home. Again in the home. 
Both of them were just shot. Laura had no trauma or rape or anything like that. And then just three miles from them, Joel Druger, a 36-year-old man, was found in his car with an empty wallet. And he was also shot with a shotgun. And they were able to determine that it was the same gun for all three victims. This time, a neighbor saw a weird car in the area that she didn't recognize. If you've ever lived in a small town, you know who lives on your street. You know when their kids graduate. The cops know your car, too, and know when you're supposed to be home and oh when you're God. not. I Remember know. <laughs> One time I got pulled over because... I had walked around from the backyard because I forgot I parked my car in the front. And I actually got pulled over because he didn't know what I was doing out so late. And he's <laughs> That's small town. Right? <laughs> I think the cops, because mom was so beautiful, I think that's why they watched our house, honestly. Oh, right? Yeah. <laughs> but if you live in a Even small town... Even my friends in high school were like, hey, your mom's single. I'm like, so am I. My friends are like that, too. <laughs> hey, can we go to your house a lot? Because yeah. I want to see your mom. <laughs> you suck. <laughs> So in small towns, that's exactly what it's like. You know cars that belong there. You know cars that don't. Your friends are enemies with all your neighbors, but you know them. You know their business. You can't help it. Yeah. So this neighbor sees this weird car in the area, and she actually writes down the license plate, and she gives it to the police department. Oh, bingo. Mm-hmm. The state police run the plate, and it's registered to Equipa to Edward Surratt. That's our guy. Now, now all we have is he's driving down the road. He wasn't caught in the act. There's no evidence against him. They can't him. place him at the scene. Right. The There's crime. no suspicion. So that's all they have. So they can't do anything. But they do put surveillance on him. They're sure that with this short span of cooling off that he is soon going to, he's going to have to kill again. Oh, yeah. So Lucian Paglia, who was a Pennsylvania state trooper at the time, gets the assignment to do surveillance on Edward Surratt. And he had formerly worked in Vice, but now he's trailing Edward Surratt. Um, And they followed him from his residence. They knew he went to church on Sundays. What Lucian Paglia talks about is that he would come out of the church and then he'd go around the corner and then change his appearance. And I'm not sure that he even knew that they were following him at that time. That's just what he did. And a lot of law enforcement officers talked about that, about how in all these different pictures, he would look totally different. He would have a beard in one and then a Fu Manchu and then clean shaven and big bushy afro and then bald scalp. They said he looked like a different person. If they hadn't known him before, they wouldn't even know that it was a hard time tracking him. Exactly. But they're trailing him now. Yeah, they're hot on his tail. Let me talk to you about January 7th of 1978 in Baden, Pennsylvania. And if I slaughter these names, I'm sorry. If you want to tell me the correct way to say them, I am down for that. So just leave us a review or email us. Just tell me the right way to say these. So John and Catherine Shelkins live in Baden, Pennsylvania. And John is a steel worker and Catherine is a waitress. Now, John Shelkins Jr. talks about his mom and dad. Uh, his dad was an easygoing guy. He had a good sense of humor easy to get along with. He was friends with everyone. I think part of that comes because he had seven sisters and no brothers. So he learned patience and Ah. the way to talk to people. (laughs) So his mother, on the other hand, was high strung. She worried about everything. She didn't have a great sense of humor. She had kind of a gloom and doom kind of attitude that she just knew everything was going to come crumbling down. John and Catherine had been following the murders in the paper and on TV And they had actually had discussions about what they would do if that happened. Wow. 
So John Shawkins told his wife that if anything happened, even if he shoots me, don't try to save me, don't go out the door. Because John thought that's where all the women are disappearing. Once he gets you out that door, you're gone. So you have to fight it. That's your only chance is if you stay inside. So sure enough, on January 7th, 1978, the intruder comes through the basement door, another window in the door. Mm. So he breaks in from the basement. John Shelkins is asleep in the living room on the couch. The intruder, I'm just going to call him Surratt because we know who we that know is. We know at this point. Yeah. So Surratt shoots him in the chest and gets rid of the man, the threat. He finds Catherine and she remembers what John had told her about not going out the door. So she fought with every breath in her body mm. to not be taken away from the house. And she was beaten horrifically. He actually even stomped her in the face and broke her nose so bad it was spread across her face. Oh my gosh. But she refused to leave the house and she fought with everything she had. Thank goodness their daughter had been coming home from a double date and the intruder had heard her and he ran because he was scared. You know, she's just a little girl. Right. Thank God he didn't realize that. Yeah. He could have taken her. So, yeah. So Catherine and John's daughter sees what had happened. She sees her dad and she sees her mom. Oh, no. Now, Catherine's daughter and her brother had actually gone on a double date. And after they dropped their dates off, he dropped off his sister. Now, he waited while she got into the house, and then he took off. He lived about a mile and a half down the road. Now, we had talked about that, about how you've done that, I've done that. Yeah, we wait Because <laughs> the big, scary world's outside. So, once you get past the big, scary yard, you're okay. Yeah. Um, and that's so not the case in this story. So, he gets home, and, autom- and already the phone is ringing, and it's his sister. And she's calling from a neighbor's house, and she just says, you have to come home. So there was evidence how badly his Catherine had fought in this. She had reached for the phone. He'd pulled the phone out of the wall. He'd kicked her in the face. She also remembered him putting his foot on her neck so that she would pass out. But she survived. Wow. Unfortunately, she had suffered so much trauma that she was not a really good witness. At first, she identified him as a white man. But she definitely said he had a wig on. And later on, she said that he, in fact, was not white. So the forensic team collected evidence at the house and they found hairs and semen uh, that were the right blood type. The hair was actually African-American or Mediterranean, so they could narrow it down at least to that. And when did he have time to rape her? That's what I was thinking. I don't I don't know, because if he beat her so bad, did he rape her after after he bashed her face in? Wow. That's a special kind of fucking evil. Yeah, right there. So they were desperately looking for anything to tie Edward Surratt into all these murders. And apparently they're still happening. He actually was under surveillance at the time. Yeah, I was just going to say that. Where's the trail? Where's the surveillance? I I don't get it. They go on a coffee break or something? (laughs) (laughs) So while they're looking for evidence to tie him, Detective Tank Smith has an idea to actually talk to Afia, Ed Surratt's wife, who has stuck by him through all of this. Through his conviction of raping a 13-year-old right. and all of these things. I mean, he can't be home very much. You know, he's working and then he's killing and just kind of busy. So, Detective Tank got an idea to talk to, to get close to Ed Stroud's wife and start talking to her because maybe she has insight. She's I mean, got to have something, some kind of insight, yes. 
And also, psychologist Alan Pass did a profile on the killer. And in his profile, he talks about uh, the killer was symbolically killing his father and his mother. And he received sexual satisfaction out of assaulting women and raping. He also was in excellent health, but his paranoid delusional system made him feel omnipotent like godlike, like nothing could touch him. Which I could get that because obviously so far he's been able just to kill willy fucking nilly. Yeah. And not even try to hide the crimes and nobody is even close. So right. I could see where he'd get that. Psychologist Pass also said that he probably has combat experience. Oh, and, ex- and he does. An experience with stalking. Remember when he got arrested? When he was a kid. Yeah, when he was just a teenager. That's how that usually starts is the peeping Tom. He would be familiar with firearms and he would also have a mobile occupation. So that makes sense as well. Um, truck drivers, traveling salesmen. We had talked about that in our first episode. How they know the back roads. Exactly. I like that. They know roads. which roads are busy, which roads aren't. And being anonymous. So Frank Keenan and Mike Tukarzik. I'm so sorry, Mike. If I... <laughs> slaughtered that so frank and mike interview Surat. um they finally pull him in and they ask him why was your car in breezewood on new year's eve those were, those were the plates that that neighbor lady took. yes okay. that she wrote down and he didn't get sweaty he didn't get nervous he just said nope he was in aliquippa and that was it it didn't matter that they told him that we had your plates we have you dead to rights no nothing so i don't know why they didn't try to push that but they let him go because he didn't confess or something i don't i don't understand that but well, I mean, and, and you get in the room with the detectives or whatever, and they push you, and they, they get confessions out of people that you wouldn't think they would. Yeah, but they didn't do any of that. Right? None of that. So, are they still looking for evidence, maybe? Yeah, maybe. Time? Maybe they didn't have enough. Meanwhile, Tank Smith is still working on the wife, Afia, and he finds out that she had actually sent her 14-year-old daughter back to North Carolina from where she's from to stay with family, and the reason of that is because of the sexual advances of Edward Surratt. And that, okay, so you choose your gross-ass husband, right, who's disgusting. and sends your beautiful daughter away. Yeah. Thank well, God, I mean, she didn't, maybe, hopefully, didn't let it go to the point of... That would make you feel so bad if you... Uh, like, it's your fault. Right. That is so disgusting. <sighs> On March 28, 1978, Catherine Felicki, age 70, was found dead in her home in Boardman, Ohio. Now, Glenn Bowers was the police chief at the time, so he had no idea about the serial killer. Yeah, they're not connected up in Ohio. But he wanted to get the murder of this lady. She was 70. She was a really nice lady. Her neighbors loved her. So he brought out the dogs to catch the scent to figure out where he came from, this intruder, where he went, and everything that they could find. So, watching the dogs and how they went, he believes that the intruder parked the vehicle <laughs> in the back of a church parking lot by Glenwood Avenue. Now, Glenwood Avenue is parallel to Hitchcock Road, and that is where Catherine Felicki lived. According to how the dogs track, he traveled between the backyards of Glenwood and Hitchcock. He went all the way down to the end of tr- Hitchcock. He turned around and backtracked. He actually went around multiple homes. Right, so it wasn't like sporadic, like, oh, hey, I'm just going to go in this house. According to Glenn Bowers, he was looking for a target, Mm. just like what you said. He actually burglarized the house across the street and catty corner from Catherine's house. And then across the street, the home next door was also burglarized. And then he made it to Catherine Felicki's house. So the neighbor found when she went to go check on Catherine, she found glass broken out of the back door. Oh. Yeah, again. Again. And Catherine Felicki was in the bathroom with abrasions to her head and face, and she had, in fact, been beaten to death. 
At this scene also, they found African-American hairs. And this time, Glenn Bowers was not territorial about any of this, which really helped. He notified the task force in Pennsylvania immediately that that is what happened. And later on, looking at records, they find out that Edward Surratt received a traffic ticket in Boardman, Ohio, on March 27, 1978. So that is a day before Catherine Felicki was found dead. So that places him in Ohio. And you know, this whole thing is about him being a truck driver, but none of this story is about him actually driving a truck. Uh, he got the ticket, and then she was most likely killed that night, and then her body was found the next day. So he got the ticket, and then he went to do his stuff. That still didn't deter him. Nope. So on April 18th, 1978, a month later, Edward Surratt was arrested on a bench warrant for his traffic violation. Okay, if you're a serial killer and you get a traffic ticket, you should yeah. probably freaking pay that. Oh, yeah, like take or care fix of your headlight that's out. Right. So you don't get pulled over and get a ticket. <laughs> exactly. So he didn't do anything about the ticket. And maybe this goes back to him feeling godlike mm. that nothing can touch him and he doesn't have to yeah. he doesn't have to play by the rules like everyone else. So he was arrested on a bench warrant for a traffic violation, and he was questioned while he was there about the burglaries and the murder. Now Edward Surratt, he wouldn't deny it and he wouldn't admit it. He just played games with them, and it was just like a big circle. He dealt with the traffic ticket, he dealt with the court, and he was gone. But they have evidence of the hairs and somebody to compare it with now. But it's not like DNA. I mean, it's okay. an African-American hair, and they can they can do the blood type, I think. Okay. I'm not sure how hairs work. Maybe you're right. I don't know why he was able to run around this long, knowing that it's him. Right. So after he took care of his traffic tickets, he shakes the surveillance and then he disappears for two months. And apparently it's it's pretty easy to shake them because he was killing the whole time he was under surveillance. So, On June 1st, in 1978, in West Columbia, South Carolina, neighbors found Luther Lanford, 66, and Nell, 58, his wife, severely beaten, and Nell had been sexually assaulted. And that's in South Carolina, so he's making his way south. This time, Afia tells police that her husband has a car with South Carolina plates. Edward Surratt goes back to Aliquippa, mm -hmm. and the surveillance starts up again. This time, they find the car, and it's in the steel mill parking lot. They surround the car. They disable it so it wouldn't start, and they wait. They're going to get him. So they see him, and they've got him at gunpoint, and somehow he gets away. What? Yeah. Lucian, the same stripper that was had him on surveillance, chases him through the mill, and finally loses him when he jumps down a 60-foot embankment and disappears. What? So he is gone. Oh, how frustrating for those police, for the detectives and everybody that they almost had him. In May of 1978, Afia talks to psychologist Pass, the one that did the profile on him. Okay. And she starts talking about Surratt, her husband, his routines, and what he's like. So they find out that Surratt wakes up at 4.30 in the morning every day. He eats breakfast, and then he smokes weed. That's his daily routine. <laughs> no orange juice, I'll just take a drink. <laughs> yeah. He doesn't like to be compared to others, and he wants to be his own boss, and he hates to be corrected. And she also says his religious beliefs come in waves, which makes sense, because like you had said, you go to church for attrition, and then you don't believe so much when you want to go ahead and kill people. I think that goes with a lot of people that say that they're religious. They go up and down. Mm-hmm. So... Oh, yeah. He's extremely self-conscious about his balding, but he is proud of his body. Um, money makes him happy. Lack of money, very depressed. Well, who isn't like that, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I'm like that. I'm, I am too. Right. <laughs> she said he was intelligent, ambitious, and very authoritarian with Afia. He feels like he's a failure, and he feels guilty about his father's death, which is weird. Because his father died of cancer. Right, lung cancer. 
He couldn't have prevented that. Yeah, but maybe with him failing his business and all of it combined. Maybe. He resents his mother. Um, he's happy when he reads about the murders, and he likes war movies with lots of blood. In July 1st, 1978, in St. Augustine, Florida, a person walking down the street outside of Mr. and Mrs. Stevers' home sees a person peeking through a bathroom window in their house. Ah. So this intruder sees the person and then runs inside and slams the door behind him. So he basically forced himself inside this home. I'm not really sure why this person did not go and call the police right away. Yeah. But apparently they didn't. Maybe they were too scared. Maybe. I mean, this is their neighbors. I don't, I don't know. So the intruder ties up Mr. and Mrs. Stever and their daughter with electrical cord. He then assaults and rapes the girls repeatedly. Wait, he ties up the dad, the man? Yes. Which is totally out of character. That he would just not, maybe he didn't have a shotgun. Maybe he didn't have a gun. Well, he just got done running. That was like a month before, right? Lost but, all his weapons? <laughs> maybe. He ties all of them up with electrical cord. Um, and then he assaults and rapes the girls repeatedly. While he's doing all this raping and beating, he's drinking and smoking weed. So he's got them all laid out on the bed, and he's laid out on the bed with them, getting wasted while they're tied up, and then he'll rape a little bit and then go back to drinking until he eventually passes out. There's their escape, huh? <laughs> right. Wow. So Mr. Stever is able to get loose, and he runs to the neighbor's house and calls police. Now, Edward no way would I leave anybody of my family please there. pass out and you want to get the cops there no way you I would cut their dick off <laughs> i would for you you could kill him oh yeah as slowly <laughs> and i don't know about saint augustine florida maybe they're more refined than us maybe they oh. i don't know yeah. maybe they're more of the golf course club i don't know hmm. so they pick edward Strat up who is still passed out on the bed the cops come and get him and he refuses to tell them his name, but, the, of course, the next day they find out. Okay, where is he at now? In Florida. Oh. So he's detained in Florida, and then they find out that he's actually wanted in all these places. So he calls up his old friend, Wayne Lepicky. Which he went to school with. Uh, yes. In his childhood. Yes, and he's and then in the Army. In the Army. In the Army, yeah. So now Wayne Lepicky is a public defender in Beaver County. So he calls his friend, and even though Wayne can really do nothing for him, he still flies down there. And and Wayne talks about how, it's funny, on the plane, there were all of these detectives from all these different jurisdictions going down on the same flight with him, and he's going, and he just wants to talk to Eddie, because he's his friend. Yeah. Yeah. So they go down there, and Wayne talks to Eddie a little bit, and they just joke around, and he said, yeah, it's the same old Eddie, you know, just making jokes, and we didn't even talk about anything. The detectives also wanted to talk to Edward Surratt. Uh, they show him the crime scene photos, and all it did was excite him. But then, oh, you gross. know, they asked him about the missing girls, and he didn't care one way or the other. They've asked him through all of this time where those girls are. And finally, towards the end, this was in 2007, when they asked him again, he said they're unrecoverable. So I don't know if he threw them in water or burned them or I don't know. Where would he have done that? So in August of 1978, they have the pre-trial hearing. The steel mill. Oh, and that hot molten. Yeah. That's wow. why he was there. Maybe, yes. That Maybe. makes sense. <laughs> so, of course, he pleads not guilty. And he says on the stand that he, quote, thought it was another beach sex party. Oh, wow. So he's trying to tell the jury that he actually thought that this older couple and their teenage daughter were part of a sex party. 
that he had been invited to. Wow. What, what the hell? What a crazy world he lives in. <laughs> right. So it was a one-day trial, and the jury was out for two hours. He was found guilty of three counts of rape and one count of burglary. In October 27, 1978, he was given two life terms and two 100-year sentences. So he did admit to killing Shelkins at the interview in July. Which one was Shelkins? Um, he was the one where his wife got away. Okay. Yeah, Catherine. But he told the media that the reason why he confessed to that was strategic because South Carolina had the death penalty and he'd rather be guilty in Pennsylvania. Makes so, sense. yeah, if he goes there, he's banking on the fact that they're not going to have enough money or want to do it if he's already there for life. Ha ha, sucker. In June 1979, he went on trial in South Carolina. Oh. Yes. He was accused of murder, assault, battery, attempt to kill, robbery, and rape. And this time they had witnesses because he had sold his blood to get money while he was in South Carolina. And he was also seen in a homeless shelter. Uh, the biggest red flag was he was driving around in Langford's car, the murder victim. Now, the wife had lived, and she was in a wheelchair after, and she had speech problems. She had massive head trauma. The detectives had tried to get her to pick him up out of a lineup, but she couldn't do it. Mm. She couldn't remember. But when they were in court, he was sitting with his defense lawyer at the table, and she said, well, that's him right there. So, and pointed to where he was sitting. Yeah, so that's that's a pretty good idea, I think. Yeah. So he was found guilty, but they did not give him the death penalty. No idea why. Now, Dr. Catherine Ramsland is a psychologist, and she also is on a lot of documentaries speaking about serial killers, and she's a fascinating person. But she had this to say about Surratt that he was different from other trucker serial killers, and that usually truck drivers will pick up prostitutes or drifters, like easy pickings. Mm -hmm. But for him, the part of the fantasy, the whole thing of why he does it is to enter the homes of the victims of the type. Like that there's he sanctuaries there. Yeah, it's like that extra. There's safe places. Mm -hmm. Carl Frost of the Beaver Township, Ohio Police said the Surratt would ride his bicycle through the neighborhood hunting for victims. Okay, you know, like how old is he? Like, it's not like a kid riding on a bike or something. I mean, I know that's not like what people do and they have their little bike outfits on right. with their butt pads now, or whatever. I don't, you're now right. Just, I mean, that would be a suspicious in like itself. Like, around. Like, in like the 70s. Yeah. I don't know. Like, that would be suspicious in itself. I think so. And he would always look for single floor houses. Or if he, if it wasn't suspicious, they would know. Probably the town drunk or something has to ride his bike because he's had so many DUIs or something. Right. <laughs> so he'd always fix single floor houses um, so that there would be no surprises from the second floor. Oh, what surveillance he was doing. Right, exactly. That whole prowling, stalking. And Robert Payne said that Surratt used military tactics. Um, he laid in wait mm -hmm. and he hunted. He showed that he was capable of taking out the man to make the woman know that he had the power. And you had talked about that before, about uh, the first case that we did, taking out the man immediately. Is It's not just to make for... make submissive to him. Yes. Yeah. Because look at what I can do. I'm all powerful. Very fearful then. Yeah. There's no way out. Another thing that Robert Payne had talked about in this documentary was that he said a lot of people blamed it on PTSD from being in Vietnam. Yes. And that that's what happened. Well, yeah, uh, Robert they, Payne also said, but I was in Vietnam, and I'm fine. But people react to it different. It's I mean, a big there's, war. I mean, where were you in Vietnam? We've had um, friends that have had a hard time with it, have taken their own life because of it, and 
you know, with somebody like that is already triggered. I mean, who knows what they had done over there? I mean, did we make this serial killer from Nam? I don't think so. But I'll give you my theory at the end. Okay. Many women that Surratt had had relationships with uh, came out and claimed that he was abusive. In fact, a prostitute came out and said that when he had hired her to have sex with him, he had, in fact, taken her to a dump, like a landfill, and wanted her to lie down in the gravel in the mud because that's the only way that he could have intercourse with her. That's wow. the only way that he could get off. Dirty whore. So he was convicted, and he is languishing away in the Florida State Prison. Now, in February 2007, 30 years later, uh, Mr. Surratt has actually come out and confessed to some of the murders that had been unsolved. Oh, good. That's closure for the family. Yes. That's good. He admitted to six unsolved murders, including the teenagers, um, okay. Finlay and Renee Greger. That's the most heartbreaking, just because they had so young had their lives ahead of them. Now, he's suspected of committing at least 18 murders. Edward Surratt also admitted to killing David Hamilton and his wife, Linda. So apparently she's off the hook for the the murder of him. And John Davis and his wife, Mary. Which they never found Linda's body. No. And that's when... Unrecoverable bodies. Yes. So somehow he made them disappear. Now, all of these confessions, just like he tried to confess before, to be strategic, to be able to get into Pennsylvania prisons, this also was not from the goodness of his heart. What he wanted in exchange for these confessions is a transfer to a prison in South Carolina. Now, remember, he had been convicted of killing Langford, so he does have a sentence waiting for him if he can get through the 200 years. If he does that, then he has to go to South Carolina. Okay. But he heard through the grapevine that the prisons in South Carolina um, have spring mattresses and air conditioning. So if he confesses, that's like his trade-off. And Florida, they're all for it. They're like, oh, just take him. He's a pain. Just go. In fact, we had found some, some details about an escape into Polk County where he received another two years. But we cannot find any other information about that. It right. happened in 93. Like whether it was successful or not, or maybe it's just an attempt to escape. Right. And we cannot find anything on that besides that. So he received another two years and six months onto his 200-year sentence for that escape. And even then, he did not give full confessions. He still played his games. He didn't just come out and say, okay, this is what happened. I shot them, raped her. He did not do any of that. He did as minimal as he could. As a side note, uh, Renee Greger, after her disappearance, her parents kept the girl's room exactly as she'd left it. The 15-year-old? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's sad. And John Feeney, uh, when he, on his date, he had been instructed to return the van to his parents by 10 because his mom worked nights and he never showed back up. And as a closing thing to think about, she says, I'd like my son back. That's not going to happen. And I have to face that reality. If you have to be blunt, my son bled to death in our car. The fancy medical term is exsanguinate, but it's still there. You think about that on birthdays. There's a hole in all of your holidays, in everything. And it comes to the surface every so often when you think about what would have happened if he'd had a chance to grow up. And I don't think, honestly, that we um, consider the victims in any podcast. It's always the tantalizing killer, but that really puts puts it into reality for you that there are people that have to deal with that the rest of their lives. And it's not just the killer, the victims' families, because they're also victims. And we'll try to do better, and we'll try to make them more of a central part of our story because it's them that really matter, not some piece of shit killer. So. Right? I don't know. I'm having a hard time talking because I'm crying. Oh, baby. <laughs> That's the worst part of it. I know. It's the not, not being but able to. But the justice and their voices are still being heard. So now you know as much as we do. 
I hope you tune in next week when you cover another serial killer truck driver down a dark road. Have a nice week.